Trust in the Lord with all your hearts. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's take a few seconds for spiritual preparation, confession of sins, and then I will open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the text of the Word of God. We're thankful for our passage this evening in Zechariah. We pray, Father, for uh, God the Holy Spirit to guide us as we go through this passage, that we might have a better understanding of it and uh, what it holds for us in the future. We're also thankful, Father, for uh, what we've just recently heard about uh, Tommy Ice, and that is that he is doing better. Uh, We know that he had a very a difficult night and early in the day was not doing well but is now improving and we're certainly thankful for that we pray for his continued improvement and that he might be able to be moved from the intensive care unit soon father we also pray for the uh, spencer family for everett cynthia and the family we pray as they are uh now uh going through this a time of grieving and missing uh, Nathan. We pray, Father, that they will be comforted by the fact that uh, he has, in fact, uh, moved from time to eternity, and he is now in the presence of his Savior. We pray that uh, the planning for the memorial service on Monday will go well, will go smoothly, and that Uh, that all who would like to be here from the family would be able to arrive and that as they come together and go through this planning and um, working with each other that it would be harmonious and that uh, all would truly go well and we ask these things in Jesus name Amen alright we are uh, finishing uh, Zechariah 14 and last two weeks ago two weeks ago we started um, in verse 16 uh, finishing the uh, the chapter over to 21 and we we actually did a pretty good job working through verse 16 but uh, what I'd like to do is just review that tonight because it's been uh, two weeks last week we had uh, an excellent presentation from Craig Northcott about uh, the local church's role in government and hopefully he'll also be able to give that at the uh, Chafer Conference. I think that may be something that he, he's going to have the opportunity to, to do. But he, by the way, uh, thanked uh, the congregation for allowing him to be here and he really enjoyed the social time afterwards. I think it was the cake that did it. But anyhow, he really enjoyed being here talking with us and uh, uh, said he looks forward to coming back. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I re- very much appreciated him telling us about uh, the Disciple Makers Ministry Multiplied 
disciple makers multiplied, I guess is the actual name of it. Um, and he'll be flying uh, to uh, to work in his country. And he said on his way back, he may stop and uh, be able to spend a night and maybe give us a debriefing on how it went. That's a ministry that I, I think is uh, very uh, apropos for us, and I'd like to see us maybe uh, be able to get into that. Anyhow, tonight... We are in uh, Zechariah 14, beginning in verse 16. Let me read the passage for us. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left, who remains, we could say survives, of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And we'll spend a little time with the Feast of Tabernacles tonight. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague. And the word here for plague is exactly that, but it probably represents judgment. Judgment or consequences with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. We've had the the phrase Feast of Tabernacles three times here, and I think it's um, whenever we have that kind of repetition, it tells us that there's something important about that, uh, that event. Verse 20. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now, just a casual reading of that probably tells you that there's uh, some questions about this. Uh, In the last verse, we have Canaanite. Uh, We see Egypt mentioned. We see plagues. We're talking about no rain. We're talking about the uh, Feast of the Tabernacle. Um, there's, and then we have, what is all this about, uh, holiness on the bells of the horses and pots in the house, like the bowls before the altar? I mean, there's just, it seems like a collection of, of questions that we could ask here regarding this passage. And I think we can sort these out. Uh, let me begin very quickly here by reviewing what we had the last time that we were uh, two weeks ago. The background, sort of the introduction here to 1621. Uh, first of all, we see that God promises to require universal worship in Jerusalem. Now, there's a requirement there, but we are going to see that there's a choice. Uh, You have a choice whether you 
uh, attend or not, but if you don't attend, there'll be consequences. Secondly, Gentiles from other nations of the world will embrace the Messiah, uh, will embrace Messiah Jesus during the tribulation and will not be destroyed by him when he returns. So there are going to be Gentiles, which really we've been told all uh, since the beginning of the word of God, that the Gentiles are important to God as well, and they are going to be involved in the worship during the millennium. Thirdly, the nations that are spared end-time judgment will be made to show their continued allegiance to the Lord through worship. And uh, the worship that we're going to see, it says year by year, and that year by year worship is the Feast of Tabernacles, or it's a, uh, a, a feast that is similar to that feast. Fourth, they will also be expected to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And I think that we can merge those two together the more I read this. And then fifth, it will be the required festival of the Messianic Kingdom because it will celebrate the gathering of the nations to the Lord and especially his tabernacling among them. And Charles Feinberg said this in his uh, God Remembers. Uh, I think that the Feast of Tabernacles in the Messianic Kingdom is going to have some uh, have great significance. And he touches on this. It's the gathering of the nations. But also, tabernacling amongst them is one of the, uh, the importances of this feast. The Lord will tabernacle, not just amongst the Israelites, the Jews that are there, but all nations. And I think that that's important for us to see. All right. In verse 16, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of the nations, and uh, I think some translations have the survivors, and that's an excellent translation, uh, which came against Jerusalem. Therefore, who came against Jerusalem? That those would be the Gentiles. Shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And the word here for Feast of Tabernacles is Sukkoth. Uh, it's represented uh, in different ways depending upon whether it is uh, has the feminine ending or, or uh, sort of a neuter ending here, and it's Sukkoth. Uh, but it can also be Sukkoth. And it would be S-U-K-K-A-H or S-U-K-K-O. T, Sukkoth. And we'll t I'll talk a little bit more about this, but the Feast of Tabernacles was uh, a feast that was observed every year, and it was one of the three major feasts. And the word Sukkoth here, or Sukkoth, is the word for tabernacles. But the word for tabernacles is used is translated for several different words and here I think it's a little bit misleading Feast of Tabernacles and a, and a better translation really would be booths and I think it's used in some, taber, some uh, translations that way 
um, mostly because when we think of the feast of booths, we should not be thinking of the tabernacle. Um, it's just that those words are sometimes used interchangeably. As a matter of fact, we should not even be thinking tent because a tent is even a more uh, substantial shelter than is understood here for the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'm going to address that here in a moment. Uh, First of all, the tribulation comes to an end and the next step in the Lord's plan for human history is the Messianic Kingdom. And we did see this two weeks ago, so let me kind of move through this quickly. Uh, All who are left of the nations means those who survived the campaign of Armageddon. Um, There were Gentile armies that came against uh, Israel, against the Jews in uh, the nation of Israel and the land, and they were severely defeated. Uh, But that doesn't mean that all the Gentiles of the earth came. There are still going to be Gentiles throughout the world who did not participate and many of them uh, are believers Uh, the Jews will have been gathered from the four corners of the earth at the end of the tribulation therefore they are already in Jerusalem they have been regathered and we see that in Isaiah 11 11 through 12 therefore the survivors are Gentiles who remain from the judgment of the sheep and goats. And I think that we spent quite a bit of time two weeks ago in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, uh, getting a better understanding of the sheep and goats' judgment. That judgment, the judgment of the sheep and goat, is only Gentiles. And it is believers who are sheep, who are sheep, and goats who are unbelievers. And only the sheep remain. The goats, as we saw two weeks ago, are going to be removed from the earth and they go to the lake of fire. And the sheep are the ones, the uh, Gentile believers, along with Jewish believers, who will enter the millennial kingdom. Five, the Gentile believers who showed compassion for the Jews during the tribulation will enter the millennial kingdom and worship the king, the Lord of hosts. Remember the way that the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, describes this uh, in Matthew 25 is those who showed compassion for the Jews who were being persecuted are the ones who Uh, are identified as the sheep. And there, every now and then people will say, oh, so all they really needed to do was show kindness to the uh, Jews and therefore, and they they are blessed and they enter the kingdom. Well, the answer to that is yes. And then we'll follow that by saying, well, isn't that sort of works righteousness? Isn't that sort of a... uh, uh, work salvation and the answer is only those who are believers will show that kind of compassion because remember during the tribulation you are either going to worship the antichrist or you will worship 
the Lord. There's only two sides. And those who are have the mark of the beast are not going to be showing compassion to the Jews. So they will uh, demonstrate faith in the Lord. And then because of their faith and because of their uh, allegiance to the Lord, they will show compassion to the Jews. So we're not... We're not describing anything here other than those who are believers. Um, point six here, the Feast of the Tabernacles or Booths, was a, a required yearly festival celebrated by Israel. And there are, <clears throat> there are several passages that describe this. Um, I think last week we may have turned to Exodus 23, 14 through 16. But let me give you other passages, and some are even much better. Uh, Exodus 34:22. We also have Leviticus 23, 40 to 43. But the passage that has the most information is Numbers 29, Numbers 29, 1 through 40, and it describes what happens on each day. This is a a week-long festival, and it ends with an eighth-day Sabbath. And so uh, Numbers 29, 1 through 40 is the best description of this. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 16 is also a passage and this was one of three feasts that required a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, one of the three. Let me finish these points, and then we'll get a little bit more on the Feast of, of uh, Booths. Seven, the feast, also called the Feast of Ingathering, and here I use the term Sukkoth, or Booths, celebrated the end of the harvest season and the gathering of Israel's labors from the fields. Uh, We have the feast. The first feast is the feast of the Passover, which is joined to the feast of unleavened bread, and they really become one. And that is the first feast that requires a pilgrimage. The second feast was the feast of the harvests, which we call Pentecost, which was 50 days later. That was the second, and that's the beginning of the harvest. We would say the first fruits, and that's what we associate with Pentecost, the first fruits of the church age. But, of course, that's not how Israel celebrated. They celebrated as the first fruits of the harvest, and that was the first fruit that uh, the first portion of the harvest. Well, at the end of the harvest, that would be the feast of the ingathering, and that's the feast of the booths or tabernacles, and tabernacles is probably not the best word here. But that was the third feast, and it was a week-long feast. Now today, as we try to merge some of this with what's happening today, um, the Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Booths is merged in the seventh month with uh, the Day of uh, Atonement, 
and also um, what they would call their New Year's, New Year's celebration on the first day of the seventh month, which uh, is um, Rosh Hashanah. So that's their, and they, and now that whole period, because uh, the Feast of the Ingathering doesn't begin until the 14th day, 14th day, I think it is. But anyhow, uh, that's a little bit of information. Let me finish this. Point eight, uh, the feast celebrated the protection and provision of the Lord during Israel's wilderness wanderings. The feast has a a significance in that it it looked or represented, as it says here, um, it memorialized the Lord's care and provision for Israel as they came through the wilderness. But it also looks forward, and that's why Zechariah is addressing this, it looks forward to the millennium. And when the Lord will dwell, again dwell with Israel and with the nations. And then 9, and that's what we have here, during the millennium, this festival of the uh, uh, the Messianic Kingdom will celebrate the gathering of the nations to the Lord, and especially His tabernacling among them. All right, just for for fun and for informational purposes, I thought I would uh, read to you a little bit about the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, Feast of Booth is probably the better way, or the Feast of Ingathering. This is a book, um, the Feast of Israel. And it's written by Bruce Scott. And he is um, on the staff of the Friends of Israel. And they are uh, dispensational uh, and a pretty solid group. He says uh, about the feast that this feast is considered the greatest of all the feasts. It is sometimes referred to simply as the holiday. It's also referred to as the feast. Therefore, uh, this is um, their uh, the feast that they probably celebrate more than than others. It says filled with joyful memories of yesterday and hopeful dreams for tomorrow. This marvelous festival is known as Sukkoth or the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is the last in a series of God-ordained festivals given to Israel. You can find this in Leviticus 23, 33-43. Sukkoth was also the third and final occasion on which all the Jewish adult males were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to appear before the Lord. And, of course, they brought their families, if at all possible. A joyful holiday filled with celebrations, Sukkoth also is known in Scripture as the Feast of Ingathering because it was held at the end of the harvest season when God's bounty and provisions were so clearly in view, Exodus 23:16. The Feast of Tabernacles had a commemorative purpose as well. It looked back to the time when the children of Israel dwelled in temporary shelters or booths as God led them through the wilderness and provided for their every need. The festival also has a prophetic has a prophetic aspect. One day, 
during the age of the Messiah, the glory of God representing the presence of God will again dwell with Israel as it once did in the wilderness. Scripture mandated that the Feast of Tabernacles was to begin on the 15th day of the seventh month, Tishri, today, and last for seven days. The eighth day was a solemn assembly called Shemini, uh, Shemini Azaret. Uh, no labor was permitted on the first or the eighth days, eighth days of the festival. It talks. Uh, it says here the Bible records the Feast of Tabernacles was observed at the dedication of the temple in the days of Solomon. Gives a few other op, uh, uh, other events or other times. Numbers twenty nine twelve through thirty nine. I gave you that outlines a certain number of animals to be offered as sacrifices during the seven days of Sukkoth. Uh, sometimes we get the picture of these uh, uh, that the the Feast of Booths was a time when they sort of just gathered in their little shelters and um, and memorialized the the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. Well, it was much greater than that. If you read uh, Numbers 29, there is an immense amount of sacrifices going on, and they're not in their booths uh, that much, although they were required to spend time in them. Today, these animal sacrifices are no longer performed because there's no longer a temple in Jerusalem. Apart from the work prohibition and festival offerings, there were only three requirements prescribed for the holiday of Sukkoth. The building of a temporary shelter or booth, the taking of four species of foliage, and rejoicing during uh, all seven days. Of the requirements surrounding Sukkoth, the most conspicuous is building a temporary shelter or booth called a sukkah. Observant Jews who participate in this custom sometimes begin building their booths immediately after Yom Kippur, which is the uh, first day of the month, hoping to gain merit with God. Booths are built at homes and often at synagogues. In Israel, it's common to find booths located on rooftops, balconies, and in courtyards. According to the rabbinical teaching, the booth must meet a certain building code to be acceptable. Of course, this came afterwards. It must be at least four feet long, at least four feet wide, and then it says no more than 30 feet high. Oh, that's a skyscraper. I, this may be a misprint. I have no idea, but maybe maybe that's correct. But it had to be large enough for a small table, chair, and for people to be able to sit in it because they were to feast in it. So it could not be any smaller than a 4 by 4 and 30 feet high in case you're Goliath or somebody. You know. Its roof is often covered with enough leaves and straw to provide shade without blocking out the view of the stars at night. The booth is decorated as attractively as possible. To fulfill the scriptural requirement of dwelling in their booths, holiday observers must spend more time in their booths during the week of the feast than in their homes. They are encouraged to have all of their meals during the feast inside the booths. On the first night of the feast, eating in the booth is obligatory. All right. 
that was kind of the background for us. This one is David Brickner, Christ in the Feast of Tabernacles. And I I like this because it talks about um, the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's a sort of perspective that we may not otherwise receive. And he starts out here in chapter 7 by saying, Four men trod slowly up the side of a mountain, pausing at times to gaze at the lush scenery stretching miles into the distance below. The ground covered, uh, the ground cover of soft green grass and wildflowers was dotted by occasional patches of snow kept by the cool mountain from dis- uh, kept by the cool mountain from disappearing under the bright sun. Uh, I think that makes nice uh, prose here, but I'm not so sure how we know that. Just as they reached a level patch of ground tucked into the side of a mountain, it happened. The brightness of the sun seemed to increase a hundredfold, and suddenly three of the friends saw the fourth, their rabbi, transformed. His face and clothing shone with brightness they had never before beheld. Further, he had been joined by two others, whom the other three somehow knew to be Moses and Elijah. The three friends were hit with a startling realization that this was no natural manifestation. One might expect that there that when that one might expect that when overwhelmed with such glory most would be speechless, but not Peter. Thank goodness. Lord, it is good that we are here, he blurted out. Let us put up three shelters, one for you one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Then a, broad cloud, then a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from that cloud a voice proclaimed, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. At that point, Peter, James, and John fell on their faces in fear. Mark 9, 6 follows Peter's statement with the comment, He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Thus, many Bible commentators conclude that Peter's response to the transfiguration was to put his foot in his mouth once more, impulsively saying the most, the first nonsensical thing that came to mind. But a bit more background to Peter's statement provides another explanation and opens a window of understanding into our final chapter on the Feast of the Tabernacles. Peter's comment may sound silly to some, But it was a direct response to all that he witnessed. He saw the Lord's transformation into something, transformed into something glorious. He saw Moses and Elijah and quite possibly concluded that the kingdom of God had come to earth at last. That would explain why the imagery of the Feast of Tabernacles crowded into his thinking. In that context, it makes perfect sense that he would suggest building shelters. The word translated as shelters is the same in each gospel account. The word translated into Hebrew is Sukkoth, or tabernacles. Peter was not suggesting that Jesus pitch a tent for a night's rest. He was more likely offering to build tabernacles 
in order to celebrate the inauguration of the kingdom of God on earth. Peter understood that the Feast of Tabernacles was associated not only with remembering the past, but also looking forward to the future and to the kingdom. He knew that the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles would be a crucial component of God's kingdom. Peter said these things because he because of his understanding of the future, and it was informed by the central theme of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was traditional to read Zechariah 14 on the second day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which includes the following verse. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. No wonder, Peter said, let us build these shelters, these tabernacles. It seemed he was seeing the glory of the kingdom of God established on earth. The only problem was that the transfiguration was but a preview of the kingdom. Still, Peter's response reflects something that God's people should be reminded of today, the messianic hope. The messianic hope, the promise of the kingdom, was integral, intricately linked to the Feast of Tabernacles. In the mind of the Jewish people, each observance of this festival was a dress rehearsal for the soon coming kingdom. So, I found that to be enlightening. And there's more here, but I need to move on. Therefore, this is uh, an important section of the Word of God, not because Zechariah was speaking specifically to his audience, but for what it means to us. It's forward-looking towards the, the Messianic Kingdom and the feasts of booths, of ingathering, that we will be celebrating. And I think that that's important for us to realize. And you'll notice, and I think this is true, uh, looking at the other prophecies that we have, either in Isaiah or Ezekiel or even in Revelation, the other feasts are not celebrated. This is the only one. Because this is a feast of thanksgiving. And the other feasts have really been fulfilled. And this one is the only one that still has pertinence as we go into the millennium. And therefore, we will be celebrating this feast. And I think this is the only feast, although I don't have the last word on that. 17. Verse 17 says, And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. And the word here for family is mishpachath, and it means family, it can mean clan, it can mean tribe. And this is probably a reference to nations, but it can be smaller groups than that as well. Tribes uh, could very easily be the word we have. During the millennium, 
some of these Gentiles will fail to come to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And I, as I said, what this tells us is that they are in, they're going to be encouraged to come. Their faithfulness is going to be rewarded and their delinquence is going to suffer consequences. Uh, they will have a choice to come or not to come. And if they come, they're going to be blessed. That's our understanding. Secondly, uh, in the millennium, it will be necessary to show faithfulness to the king in worship to enjoy fertility of crops. During the age of Israel, it was also necessary for Israel to be faithful towards the feasts in order to be blessed with cultural and personal prosperity. We could go back to Deuteronomy 28 through 30, and we've read those passages many times. And we are told that if they were obedient, if they were faithful, then they would always have, they would never have a bad crop, they would have many fold, uh, they would never have uh, animals that uh, were ever barren. Uh, so they are blessed by their faithfulness. This is going to transition into the millennial kingdom. Third, the word families is also used for clans or tribes, and again, may also extend to nations. And I think that that's, we can see that sense as we go through the rest of this passage. Fourth, those who neglect the worship of the king will have no rain for their crops. And again, this tells us that obedience in the Messianic kingdom is not only expected, but therefore it's required. And there are consequences. Fair to be obedient will result in immediate consequences, which will encourage faithfulness. So remember, when we get into the millennial kingdom, we will be there in a resurrection body. But those who are believers and survive the tribulation come into the millennial kingdom in a human body and they have volition they can choose for or against uh, we believe that most of those who come into the millennial kingdom out of the tribulation will probably be very strongly positive and remain positive but their children and through a thousand years there will be many children there is no guarantee, and as a matter of fact, there's going to be a revolt at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, but there will be decisions made by them uh, that uh, will indicate unfaithfulness. Point five, the emphasis is lack of rain, which identifies plagues, or plague in the next verse. So I think the plague that we have here, uh, while it can be used for other calamities, uh, I think it does refer to the rain. <clears throat> verse 18. Verse 18 says, If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain 
they shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of the tabernacles. And again, the word here for tabernacles is sukkah. And it, I, in, in doing a word study of this and kind of tracking it down, it can be used for a thicket. It can be used for a shelter. And matter of fact, uh, Jonah, when Jonah finishes his ministry to Nineveh, and he is really put out because the Ninevites have responded to his message. He's got to be one of the more unusual uh, evangelists. Uh, the more people came forward, the worst he thought it was. You know, they were walking the sawdust trail, and he was upset about that. And so he leaves Nineveh, and he goes up, and he finds himself a gourd tree, and it shelters him. And this word, he uses it as a shelter in Jonah 4, 5. And it's also used for the word booths in Genesis 33:17, And that is the temporary shelters that um, Jacob built for his animals and family as they uh, were traveling back to Israel, to Canaan at the time. Um, and these booths were made out of uh, branches and boughs and leaves and things of that nature. And they, once they were built, you could see the stars through them, but they were, they would provide some shelter from the sun. Uh, and th- what this reminds me of, and I, I, I remember this um, sometimes being in uh, areas where there is um, bright sunshine. When you go outside, there will be a, a structure that has sort of, uh, what would we call them? Not uh, planks, but laths. And it's not designed to keep the sun out totally, but it's designed to break it. And so if you stand under it, it's much cooler there. And I think you've probably all seen that kind of a structure, latticework type thing, where the sun penetrates, but it's, uh, uh, but it's not as intense. And that, I think, is exactly what, what is being described here um, when we talk about this, these booths. Let me also read verse 19. This shall be the punishment of Israel of Egypt. This shall be the punishment of Egypt, Mitzrayim, and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the feast of booths. Uh, Verse 1 here. Let me see something. I made a note to myself here. passage I wanted to see. Okay. Let's go on here. Uh, Point one under verses 18 and 19 is that scholars here are divided as to why Egypt 
is identified as a negligent nation. Uh, some say that it was a traditional enemy of Egypt, and others say that Egypt was generally a pagan uh, idolatrous nation. Well, I think that there's a better explanation, and that is that Egypt in the Bible is frequently identified is excuse me is frequently a type of the world at large. And we could go to several passages, uh, Isaiah 27:13, Revelation 11:8, and therefore Egypt is a nation that was very familiar to Israel. It was very close to Israel. They had um, a close relationship with them. As a matter of fact, they had a very large um, contingent of Jews that went to Egypt at the end of the um, uh, the first temple period, which was it ended in 586 B.C. And that's why when um, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus go to Egypt, some think, oh my goodness, that must have really been a hardship. Well, not really, because there was a large uh, assembly of Jews in Egypt, Egypt at that time. And they probably went down there and uh, lived with uh, that large uh, community. And it was a fairly large community. And that large community existed for many, many years. Therefore, uh, Egypt here is, I think, is probably better understood as representing other nations. Um, Point three, furthermore, Egypt was not dependent on rain for its nourishment. It's sort of interesting that uh, much of Egypt is arid, but it still is a very prosperous nation because of the Nile. And the water of the Nile that uh, travels um, uh, a great distance to get to Egypt. So Egypt was not dependent on rain for its nourishment. It's, so it is mentioned here to ensure that no nation escapes judgment. Egypt often went without rain for lengthy periods, but the water of the Nile was sufficient during those times. But that will not be so during the millennium, particularly if they do not come for worship. Fourth, whether sustained by the showers by the showers of the Nile, the people who fail to submit to Yahweh's kingship will suffer the consequences. So, and point five here, the plague here appears to simply mean drought, but it will be a severe drought and it will have immediate impact. So that's that sort of describes where we are as we get to verse 20. And hopefully those are answering a lot of our questions here. Uh, Zechariah 14, verse 20. In that day, Zechariah continues to remind us that this is in the future. It's in that day, the day that's going to that's in the future, and it's going to be eschatological. We believe that this is. Uh, referring to the end time and we've progressed now into the millennium. 
in that day, holiness, this is the Hebrew word chosheth, chodesh, and it means to set apart, it means sacred, or it means sanctified. So, set apart to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Now, when we read that, what this probably means is that there are certain things that we would think are rather common. And I think that's how we should understand the word bells here on horses. Um, These are simply bells. Uh, They're nothing special, but they're on... Uh, but they are special during the millennium. And the same thing for these pots. A normal cooking pot is not considered to be a uh, a very special item in the house. I mean, it's important for cooking. Probably want it to be clean, um, maybe a little more clean in some places than others, and during certain times. I have no idea how clean the pot was in early America, on the plains, where you normally had a cooking pot uh, over the fire. I don't know how many times it came out and got really well cleaned. But uh, it appears that during the millennium, even these pots are going to be set apart or sanctified. Verse 21 says, Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. And again, this is Chodesh. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. So they will be holy enough, cleansed enough, sanctified enough to be used for uh, worship services. That'll be great. In that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Well, wouldn't you know the last line there would throw, throw a curve at us, maybe even a knuckleball. Well, let's see what we have here in verse 20 and 21. Uh, point one, finally, God promises to realize total holiness in Jerusalem. That's where he's going with this, I think. God promises to realize, to create total holiness in Jerusalem. The word holy means set apart, separate. That's another way of saying this. The word holy means set apart or separate and refers to what is distinct from what is common or profane. And when we talk, when we use the word common in the Bible, that means it is not holy, not sanctified. And that's a a very uh, general and normal way to refer to something that is rejected. We would say it's common. And it's not quite the same when we talk about Koine Greek, which is common Greek. That's the vernacular. But when we're talking about something in the temple, nothing common could go in. It had to be sanctified. It had to be um, set apart, blessed. And therefore, uh, anything that came into the temple had to somehow be transformed. And that's what we're addressing here. Something has to be set apart, has to be separate. This is a a description of the Messianic Millennial Kingdom 
in which there will be some rebellion in the end. Uh, not the new heavens and the new earth in which there will no longer be any rebellion against the Lord. So we have this description where there are some, there are going to be uh, items and most of them are now going to be holy and set apart. Um, point three here. Nevertheless, in the Messianic kingdom, the fear of God will be so pervasive and ordinary that even the bells on the horses will be will be inscribed with holy to the Lord. Uh, and these were words previously only found on the mitre of the uh, high priest's garment. So only the high priest's garment had words like this. Well, the high priest's garment was considered set apart. It was considered separate, holy. Now we find even the ordinary, the normal things are going to be set apart, holy. Point four. Then even the cooking pots will be considered holy or set apart for God's service. There will no longer be a division between the sacred and the profane. Everything is going to be sacred. It's sort of interesting. It's going to be a, a significant transformation. And with that in mind, what that also tells us is that this would be a, a reminder to everyone in the millennium of the Lord because their common utensils are set apart. They're holy. Five, even the holy sacrifices will be cooked in ordinary cooking pots as they will be holy too. So we have this indication that it's going to be a very uh, sacred period of time. Point seven, six, most important, all people who worship the Lord will also be holy. Most important here, all people who worship the king will be holy. And then point seven, There will no longer be a Canaanite or unclean person in the house of the Lord, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I believe here that the word Canaanite simply means an unclean person because Canaanites, uh, we we no longer will use the word Gentiles. and, And in reality, Gentiles is never used as a synonym for an unbeliever. It can be when it's used in contrast to a believer and an unbeliever. But Gentiles can be believers, as we know, just like uh, Jews can be. So the word here, Canaanite, is used, I believe, to indicate an unclean person. We're not going to use the word Gentile here. Therefore, this refers to uh, someone who is unclean. All right. Well, that kind of brings us to the end of Zechariah. Let me read uh, a conclusion here that was uh, written by uh, Michael Rydelnik. 
And I think it's uh, it sort of kind of pulls this to a conclusion. He says, As Israel looked at their circumstances with despair and frustration. So this is Zacharias speaking to Israel. Those who have returned, the Jews who have returned from Babylon. And they're in the land. They're looking at their temple, which may or may not be complete at that time. That's something they were supposed to do. And they're looking at the rubble that is around the temple, temple foundation, the um, altar that's there, and the rubble that is in that is throughout Jerusalem and the torn down walls. They, of course, would have despair. They would be frustrated by their uh, by their inability to rebuild the temple, distraught possibly at their own disobedience to the Torah because they were not keeping it don't have the temple and they were despondent with their uh, grinding poverty as he describes it and the drought the book of Zechariah brought hope that God would once more renew his people and make Jerusalem and remake Jerusalem thus it would motivate them to trust and obey God until that day would come because they anticipated it you know, today we would say, gosh, they got another 2,000 years to wait. Well, they didn't believe it was going to be 2,000 years. The message, and Zechariah would have believed that it was coming soon. Thus, it would motivate them to trust and obey God until that day would come. The, te- the same is true for contemporary readers today. We might be frustrated by failure, distraught at our disobedience, despondent with difficulties. But the book brings hope for the future and motivates trust and obedience. Especially in the last climactic burden, but throughout the book, but throughout the book reminds readers that the messianic king, the Lord Jesus, will come again. Establish a righteous kingdom for all the earth with Jerusalem at its center. Then the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And I add, we will be reigning with him, serving with him, And depending upon our obedience and our faithfulness, that will dictate what we are doing in the kingdom. And that is, again, motivation for us to serve, to be obedient, to be faithful, and to be good to your pastor. No, that's not part of it. It's just... All right, that's uh, Zachariah. I said that I'd like to come back next week and do a quick uh, overview of the book to make sure we have it because it took me uh, longer than I sort of anticipated. But uh, the book is is significant and it, it ends, I think, on a very strong note. But there's a lot of information, particularly in the uh, uh, the first part of the, of the book uh, as it sort of associates itself with Haggai 
and what was happening at that time, and then how the Lord uh, sort of presents this. And we have the visions to see. So there's a lot there. So next week we'll come back and, and finish that. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Zechariah and his message. And we're thankful, Father, for the clarity of it. Uh, at times it may not always seem that way, but here we have a clear view of the future. And as we put this side by side with other prophecies that we have from uh, Isaiah and from uh, Daniel, from Ezekiel, um, and also from uh, from other uh, books that we have in the Old Testament, and then, of course, with uh, Revelation, we see, Father, there is much to be learned, much to be anticipated. And we, Father, look forward to being part of this, part of the Messianic kingdom. We look forward to returning with our Lord. But prior to that, we look forward to his return to catch us up with our loved ones, those who also have believed, to be with him in the air and go back to heaven with him. And we will become, Father, uh, part of the heavenly bride with our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for your continued uh, blessing on this nation. We're thankful, Father, that you have formed this nation, that you've given us such a strong spiritual heritage. We would pray that we would return to it and return to lawfulness that we know is important. And we pray, Father, that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ would be faithful and obedient so that we might continue to be blessed. We pray for Tommy Ice and his recovery from his um, open heart surgery. We pray that that would, uh, his recovery would be uh, uh, very full and uh, complete. We also pray for the Spencer family as they are um, now grieving over the loss of a son. We pray that uh, Father, as they come towards the memorial service, that they will look forward to this memorial service, that it will be a time of rejoicing in Nathan's death, but in his death, in his um, transition from time to eternity. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's dismissed. <laughs>